I guess I forgot to introduce myself and everyone else. Um, for those of you that don't know, I'm Gary McAlpin, and my family and I, we come here. And sometimes we get to fill, or I get to fill in. I shouldn't say we, because my wife would never get up here, I don't think. Um, but uh, I'm Gary, and we live in Tahlequah, and um, we're involved in a community ministry that helps children and families that are stricken with childhood cancer. And that's a big part of what we do. It's a part of our lives as well. So, um, but for more of that, you know, we can talk later. So, but I appreciate being asked to do the service. And I bring to you um, a sermon of, of challenge and hope. Uh, this week is the challenge. Next week is the hope. Uh, this week is a little rough to get through. And it's being basically a continued conversation that we're having in the UUA. And so I'll get right started right now. Almost a year from now, for those that go to General Assembly next summer, we will be focused not only on our location, but an anniversary. Does anyone know where GA will be next year? Providence. Providence, Rhode Island. It's the closest city to what we know now as Plymouth Rock. And it is the 400th year anniversary of that landing. And this has started a dialogue in the Unitarian Universalist Association because we are a part of this legacy. We're going to be dealing with the much-needed topic of decolonization and the efforts of that action and exploring our place as an association within that paradigm that has happened in our colonized country and hemisphere. So here I am to give you a little bit of a head start. I know we have less than a year away, so I wanted to get started. Looking forward to this next GA, it's an important question to ask who we are as the UUA. We're Hope Unitarian Church, and where do we fit within our association? What do we bring? Who are we as a living organism? Now, I know it's easy. We, we tend to unite around the seven principles. Those are things that we all hold in common, not dogma, not creeds, not scriptures of a certain religion, but we hold these seven principles in common as we gather. And, and just to run through them real quickly for those that may be visiting or not know them by heart yet. Principle one, the inerrant worth and dignity of every human being. I'd like to take out the human. Principle two, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. Principle three, acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations. 
Principle four, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. Principle five, the right of conscience and the use of democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. Principle six, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for some. No, it's, it's all. <laughs> Just testing you. Principle seven. I almost put up the wrong numbers. Respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Not separate, not over here looking over, but we are connected like the roots of aspen trees. So we have our commitments to social justice, we have our commitments to liberty, and with respect, we try to honor our part of creation that we interact with. As a movement, we even helped abolish slavery in the UUA. The churches that were congregationalist became very, very influential in the abolishment. And today, we live in this covenant of principles with each other in our community. But who are we outside of just ourselves in relation to those who have been wronged perhaps by our affluence because we have taken shade of trees we did not plant we have warmed ourselves by fires that we did not light who are we with our implicit and explicit efforts of colonization in our own communities? Who are we with implicit or explicit support of cultural genocide that continues to afflict many of our tribes, even in this area, by lack of language and culture? We, as an association, have approached these wrongs from the past with different communities. Are any of you familiar with Black Lives of UU? It, it goes by the acronym of BLUE. And the UU way has addressed, not saying they're finished, they have begun a dialogue with that community and who we are as congregations and an association to help bring, even if it's relational reparations. It doesn't always have to have a money figure. It has to do with relationship. And where are we with the Flint community that still has no water? Where are we in those communities that have suffered from years and years and years of degradation due to our consumerism. 
So when we begin to address our own dependence on this colonization, and all of us have benefited in some way or another of our 400 years from the East Coast of colonization. We have built upon foundations of our ancestors ways of getting ahead in this world. That's thanks to colonization. Some call it manifest destiny. Some call it just being American. Some call it being a nationalist or a capitalist. There's all kinds of things you can throw at this movement and the reason that it happened. And I keep pulling from the East because it started in the South for the Spanish colonizers and the East for the Europe, more Western European, Northeastern or Northwestern European colonization of the United States, which began at Plymouth Rock. And so the colonizing began even in the way that we structured a place of worship or a place of sacredness. We took away the basic concepts that sacred is our earth that we walk on and instead placed congregational buildings on these rocks in this earth and said that's where we worship, making a disconnect between our original inhabitants that had worked this land, walked this earth for thousands of years without major ecological destruction. And if you look at civilizations around the world, the indigenous populations kept things in balance in ways that colonization quickly destroyed, quick, very quickly. There was a new study that came out this summer that climate scientists have actually shown that the colonization of the Americas really began our climate desperation. Has anyone seen that study? No one? One? My son, Ian. <laughs> Good job. Well, this, this new study was a collaboration of climate scientists, sociologists, historians, anthropologists, and they took ice samples that showed the atmospheric conditions for the years of the past. And as they started honing in, they noticed that what they called the mini ice age, which started in 1610, instead of it being linked like they had previously taught in the books, that our climate disaster, I, I'm trying to think of the worst word possible, did not start with the Industrial Revolution, but with the colonization of European countries. You see, Latin America was and still is the lungs of the earth. We have more trees and vegetation that is our lungs in the very living earth of Latin America that has literally kept us from blowing up as an earth, from roasting even more than what we have been. And the scientists saw that this actually began 
the destruction of the environment in 1492 and looking at the records of atmospheric pollution, they realized there was so much disruption. Think of this, over 50 million indigenous people slaughtered between 1492 and 1610. 50 million people who for thousands of years, according to archaeological evidence, not just our traditional stories, but because of evidence, we see that there were living gardens all over these continents. There were orchards. There were fields of vegetables that were caretaken in a way that provided the nutrients and the availability of continued growth, harvest, but not just in the planned areas, but in the forest around our villages and around our metropolises, because there were such a thing. We had huge pyramids that were outscaling anything else in the world in Europe at that time. We had complex social structures that were advanced beyond what has been passed down through the years. And we know that because of the way that the earth was taken care of and allowed to grow and breathe, that all it took was the destruction of the people, the cities, as it moved westward and northward and southward into the Americas, what was like the Garden of Eden in many places has now not witnessed growth in all that time. And you go to our mounds of our cities like Cahokia or Echota and see how complex our city structures were, then you begin to understand just how much reverence there was between the sacred and the earthly. It was in balance. And so what started with this deforestation and genocide that eventually resulted in the Little Ice Age disrupted us and we have never recovered since the year 1610 ecologically. We have consistently gone up and down, up and down, up and down, and everyone has seen the graphs through the years. We just had the hottest July ever. Did anyone see that on the news? We're in desperate times. What we have been doing and allowing dominant culture to keep us colonized for all these years is destroying the very mother on which we live. Our colonization efforts have left us not just wanting, but struggling to even see that our children and grandchildren will have a place to live. We have got to decolonize the way that we do things, ecologically, and I would say it goes even socially, it goes in consumer-wise, and decolonization has more about peeling off our layers of crud that's been put on us to make us fit into dominant society. And our tribes have done this as well. 
We've adopted the most American forms of government and thinking in our educational system. Instead of having a holistic model of language and culture and how it fits with the environment and how that's brought into even math and science, we've gone to the extent, even our immersion school at Cherokee Nation, test these children that only speak Cherokee from year three up to sixth grade. They're all tested in standardized tests in English in Oklahoma. So even our educational system with our tribe needs decolonized. And I'm not saying this is not a call for everyone to go out and become Indian. Don't take me wrong. This is not about putting on a costume. This is about decolonizing of our minds and our hearts. Who are we even in this association and how does that fit in this decolonization? You see, I don't have all the answers this morning. This is the questioning time. This is the challenging time. And so next week, I will bring all of the answers <laughs> with you. Because if you're coming next week, now don't skip out just because I said this. But if you're coming next week, I want to hear from you. How are you decolonizing? How are you taking off these layers that society puts on you and tells you that you should be? You should be driving this car if you live in this neighborhood, right? That's a form of decolonizing ourselves. We don't have to listen to that. So as we begin this process, looking forward to next year's GA, which would be awesome if we just a whole bunch of us went on a bus or something. We could sing all the way there. No? Okay. You're ready. I think it'd be fun. But however we get there, I want to invite you. We need you. We, indigenous communities, don't need a white savior. We need someone to come beside us and say, we're going to fight for this world. We're doing this not just for ourselves, but for our children and our grandchildren. That's the hope. That's the hope that we can bring. And with each other, I want to figure this out next week. Amen.